of reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to them, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the nail marks, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to believe that a little over two weeks ago marked the 15th anniversary of Pope St. John Paul II's death. Up until then, John Paul was pretty much the only pope I knew of or remembered, having been elected to the papacy when I wasn't even three years old. So he remains the giant figure in my mind and heart and my upbringing as a Catholic and even in my priestly formation which I think is true for for many others all around the world, especially today as we celebrate this Feast of the Divine Mercy on this second Sunday of Easter. The devotions to the Divine Mercy Chaplet really grew in popularity as a result of Pope John Paul II's admiration of Sister Faustina, where she had shared in that diary these visions she had of Jesus wanting the world to know of his divine mercy. When Pope John Paul II canonized St. Faustina, he surprised the world by also changing the universal calendar and naming the second Sunday of Easter forever the Feast of Divine Mercy. One of my favorite stories that reveals that mercy wasn't just this spiritual theological concept in the Pope's mind and heart, but it was something that he attempted to live and to share and to demonstrate in his own life. The story goes that a priest was visiting Rome and was fortunate to have an audience with Pope John Paul II. 
And just an FYI, that's not an extremely common thing. Being the head of over a billion Catholics, the, the Pope's a little bit of a busy man, so you can't just email the Holy Father's secretary and schedule something. Anyway, this priest had an hour free before he was going to meet the Pope. So he decided to go to the church across the street from his hotel and just to pray before his meeting. On the steps of the church, there were several beggars. As the priest passed to go in to pray, he thought he recognized one of the beggars sitting on the steps, but he passed him by and went into the church. As he knelt down, he realized where he knew the beggar from. He rushed back out of the church and said to the man, do I know you? And the beggar replied, yeah, we went to seminary together. And the priest was kind of startled and said, so you're a priest then? And the beggar replied, well, I, I used to be, but look at me now. So the priest was kind of speechless for a moment and just said to the beggar that he would pray for him, which the beggar replied, a lot of good that will do. This priest left for his meeting with the Pope <clears throat> and had been saddened and startled by this unexpected reunion, so much so that ordinarily when someone meets the Pope, it's a pretty formal thing. There's usually some brief introductions and a respectful gesture, and that's about it. Not a lot of time for a chit-chat or anything. But when this priest went in to meet the Pope, he bowed his head and found himself kind of blurting out the entire story about this beggar that he had met earlier in the day. And John Paul listened intently and looked concerned and told the priest that he too would be praying for this beggar. So the following day, the priest went right back to the same church and found the beggar priest again and said, guess what? I'm not the only one praying for you. Pope John Paul II is praying for you too. And the beggar said, yeah, so what? It's not going to do anything. Later that day, the priest got a call from the Pope's office. The Holy Father wanted to have dinner with this priest, and he wanted him to bring the beggar. So the priest tracked down the beggar a third time and told him, the Pope invited me to dinner, and he said that I'm to bring you as well. And the beggar said, me? <laughs> look at me. I haven't showered. I haven't shaved in who knows how long, and look at my clothes. And the priest said, I rented you a room in the hotel across the street. I've got you some new clothes as well, but we have to hurry. Not long after, the priest and the beggar were meeting the Pope to have dinner. They met in the Pope's private residence, enjoyed his hospitality. And after the different courses of the meal were finished before dessert, the Pope motioned to the priest and asked him to leave the room for a bit. So the priest went outside and left the Pope and the beggar in the room by themselves. Over a half hour later, the priest was finally allowed back in the room. And after the two men left and said goodbye to the Pope, the priest asked the beggar, what did John Paul say to you when you were in there? What happened? And the beggar said very timidly and quietly that the Pope asked the beggar if he would hear his confession. And the man said to him, me, how can I? I'm just a beggar now. And the Pope replied as he grabbed this man's hands in his, saying, so am I. So he heard the Pope's confession, and then the Pope returned a favor and heard the beggar priest's very lengthy confession.
Not long after that moment of reconciliation, the beggar was reinstated as a priest, and the Holy Father sent him to that very parish church where he once begged to now minister to those who still did. If we think about the words that that priest beggar said at first, a lot of good that will do when his former classmate from seminary promised his prayers for him, or it's not going to do anything when he learned that the Pope was praying for him. Those cynical words are not so unfamiliar to us, are they? We may have heard them, we may even have said them ourselves, and oftentimes about the same things. What good is going to confession going to do? I'm just going to repeat the same things again. What good does going to Mass do? It's so boring. What good does any of this faith in Jesus do when all these awful things keep happening to us? Look at this pandemic. Look at all the suffering in the world, all the fear and the anxiety that's all been unleashed. The thing that we celebrate with this Easter season, the thing that we celebrate as we celebrate the Feast of Divine Mercy, the good that all these things does is open us up to encountering mercy ourselves. Mercy which can most easily and beautifully be understood as love's response to suffering. Love not only as an action, but as a person, God himself. So often our minds and hearts go in a very negative direction when we think of mercy, which is somewhat understandable. We recognize that it's bringing up our sinfulness, our mistakes, our failures, which rarely we want to admit or own up to. We allow guilt and shame and embarrassment about those things that are, are weighing us down to inhibit and limit us from being who we are created to be, diminishing that we are God's beloved sons and daughters. That is the deepest of sufferings that humanity experiences, the loss of our dignity. We see it throughout the Old and New Testament, story after story from Genesis right up through the central event of salvation, the Easter story, shows a constant falling away and how God keeps looking for us and reaching out to us. In Jesus, fully man, fully divine, he most clearly and definitively reveals that God is the Father of mercy. In this gospel we just heard, the apostles who knew that they had failed miserably are gathered together. They weren't able to stop Jesus from being arrested, falsely accused, tortured, crucified. They weren't able to stop it because they weren't even there. They had bailed on him. In the midst of that failure of epic proportions, the world must have seemed to have been destroyed forever. More than likely, that first Good Friday and Holy Saturday, they remembered all Jesus had said and done over the years that they followed him. And maybe a cynical thought came to mind saying, yeah, a lot of good that did perhaps somewhat jaded themselves, thinking there was nothing left to do. They locked themselves in that upper room. They isolate themselves from the world. And it's right there, there in the midst of that isolation and that cynicism and that sense of defeat that the resurrected Jesus Christ comes to meet them. 
He stands in their midst, not inhibited by the locked doors or the broken, dispirited hearts. He doesn't offer words of condemnation or judgment on their failures, saying, hey, guys, what happened? Instead, he comes and says, peace be with you. And then he tells them that what they've just experienced, this undeserved forgiveness, they're to go forth in his name and to do the same, to share that same, which is one of the places in scripture we see as the basis for the sacrament of reconciliation and confession, by the way. In the matter of moments, these first followers experience Easter themselves. Something quite unexpected became real to them. Not just that Jesus was risen from the dead, but they, they too were to rise up from their own feelings of death, their own experiences of destructions, and to start anew. And then there is Thomas, who I think is a bit unfairly considered by many to be the, the cynic, the doubter, because he misses this first encounter. I always kind of wonder what he had going on that night. He could be the patron saint of people who miss Mass on Sunday because something else came up. But the reason I think it's unfair that he's simply referred to as Doubting Thomas is because it's understandable that he would doubt. The story sounded too good to be true. The failures on their part, that was all too real. Yet we can't miss something that's so important to this story. There's a part of him that wants to believe and hopes that it's true, hopes that the Easter news is real and wants to expect this unexpected gift himself. How do we know that? Because he's there the following week. Despite his initial objections and dismissal of his fellow apostles' testimony, he's with them in that upper room the next week and is able to experience the risen Jesus Christ revealing his living presence to him. And so now Thomas experiences how real Easter is, is as well. And the God who raised Jesus from the dead will continue to do amazingly unexpected things in all of their lives. And that's the promise of Easter for those of us who continue to follow Jesus Christ. The sad reality is that most years when we're not experiencing a pandemic and having every one of our churches shut down is that on Easter Sunday, every church is usually overflowing with present-day disciples who hear once again the good news of Jesus' victory over death. Yet to so many in the world, there's almost an indifference about the importance of that in their everyday lives. It's somewhat removed from what their understanding of God is or their experience of him. It's almost as if they seem to think to themselves, so what? Or a lot of good that's going to do me. Even for those of us who do make it here on a regular basis, maybe some of us are going through things that make us doubt, have had things that have hurt us and left us a little bit cynical, especially in this time of this pandemic. Like Thomas, we hope for the best, we want to believe but we're not going to get ourselves too excited lest we're let down again. Yet this feast of divine mercy is meant to reawaken our hope 
and our desire for the new life that Jesus experienced in the resurrection. The new life Christ wants to resurrect in us. That which has been beaten down, that which has died within us, his mercy wants to restore us as God's beloved sons and daughters. Just think about it. In the matter of a dinner and experiencing the sacrament of reconciliation, Pope John Paul II was able to help a beggar become an active priest once again. Jesus Christ was able to reach this man who had felt abandoned and enveloped in darkness through a former classmate and through the Pope. What's going to be our story? Right now, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, wants us to expect something unexpected, to do amazing, life-giving things for each and every one of us. And in fact, is counting on us to be his ambassadors of divine mercy to people who feel abandoned and isolated. Too often, we find ourselves like the apostles were that first Easter night, limiting ourselves by our mistakes and our failures and forgetting what wonders our God is capable of, which is exactly what Satan, the Prince of Darkness, wants us to do. How is Jesus trying to cast his glorious light into the darkness of our lives? How is he trying to break into the rooms of isolation that we lock ourselves away in to speak his words of peace, of forgiveness, of life-altering transformation? If we open our hearts to let him, we might really be surprised to find how good all this will do for us.